Thank you for listening to Devoted. We meet every week on Tuesdays at 7 p.m. at Calvary Chapel, East Anaheim. Thank you for joining us. Devoted meets every Tuesday night at 7 p.m. at Calvary Chapel, East Anaheim. Tonight, we are continuing the series, The Truths We Confess. So, uh, before we get into our study tonight of the uh, topic of free will, uh, a couple of things. Last week, I was asking you guys to, to pray for me. I had the opportunity of sharing in Jacob, and I just want to thank you guys for that. Give you kind of a, a recap of, of how it went. So it went uh, it went pretty well. There was probably I'm guessing about 25 people, uh, high school kids that showed up on uh, Tuesday. I got to, to share my testimony in front of a smaller group, and then Wednesday I, I shared with them out of Second uh, uh, Corinthians 5:21 about imputation, about you know it says. For God made him who knew no sin to become sin so that we could be the righteousness of God in him. And talked a lot then about how to become the righteousness of God and why we need the righteousness of God. And uh, we talked about how basically Jesus is offering us a trade. Our works for his works. Our righteousness for his righteousness. And I, he wants to make that trade. And every single one of them raised their hand. So I was super stoked about that. And then I came back Thursday, and I started asking them, hey, who remembered what we talked about yesterday? And none of them remembered anything. So I went ahead and did the whole thing again. And, and all of them are like, yeah, I want to make that trade. So, you know, I don't know, you know, whether it was sincere or or what, but, uh, you know, they all said they wanted God to start working in their life. They wanted to know the Lord. Uh, they want to go to heaven. So, um, you know, some seeds were planted, and, you know, that's all we could do, and, and trust the Lord with the rest. But I thank you guys for praying for me. I needed it, and I really felt those prayers. Uh, second thing, last week when uh, Bob was here, remember he, he talked to us about encouragement. And I kind of gave us a challenge, right, you know, an assignment to think of somebody that uh, used to either come here or to church that we haven't really seen lately, and to text them or call them or email them and encourage them, tell them something that they do that ministers to you or blesses you, and, you know, and just tell them, hey, you missed that, and so just curious, did anybody have the opportunity to do that? No? All right, no worries. So we have a, a assignment this week. I, I wasn't that great at it either, so um, to be honest, but yeah, let, let, let's do that. Let, let's, let's make a point to... to to put the hand to action, right? I, I think that's important, right? Because James says we don't want to be people that just hear the word, but we want to be doers of the word as well. And so this is a, a great opportunity to do that, to say, hey, you know what? We, we heard this great message on encouragement. There's a whole lot of people that need to be encouraged. And, you know, I could think, just think of at least one person and, and practically do that and pray about it, trust the Lord with it, and we'll see what he does. Uh, also, there's, uh, I talked about we're going to have a, a party, like a barbecue for Devoted on uh, Tuesday, August 9th, uh, so that's still on. Uh, instead of meeting up here, we'll meet outside with a fire pit and barbecue some food. And we'll have a short message, maybe a testimony, some communion, and spend some time fellowshipping together, so I'm excited about that. 
Also, if you guys don't get the uh, text continue, I'd love for you guys to get that. That way you can keep up to date what's going on. And same thing, we have our Facebook group page. That's another way to stay uh, in contact with each other, stay in community, and also stay up to date with, with what we're doing. So if you need help with any of that, come see me, and I will help you with that. If you have your Bibles, um, open them up to Deuteronomy chapter 30. Deuteronomy chapter 30. I'm not going to go through a song tonight. There's a few passages I want us to look at as we go through our study. So we'll just use this. So we'll do this. This will be the first one. Um, we'll get to that here in a minute. But Deuteronomy 30, if you have your Bible. If you don't have your Bible, why don't you? It's always my question. You know, when I was in Israel, that was the thing. The students would always be like, hey, do we need our Bible for this? Like, always need your Bible. Don't go anywhere without your Bible. Think about this. Does a cop like just leave his gun laying around? No, they take their gun with them everywhere they go. Right? This is our sword. We, we need it all the time. So, Deuteronomy chapter 30. I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll go ahead and start. Father, I just thank you for tonight. I thank you that you give us your word, that you reveal yourself to us, Lord. That such a treasure that is. We get to know one and only living God. We get to see stuff about you. We get to hear from you. We get to be encouraged by you and comforted by you. And we get to be corrected by you and improved by you. And, uh, we get everything we need to honor you and to please you and to serve you in it, Lord. And, and we get to know your son, our Lord Jesus Christ, through it. Such a privilege that is to have it, to hold it, to be able to read it, to be able to come together and study it. We don't want to take that lightly, Lord. But we ask your blessing upon tonight. We know if you don't move, nothing's going to happen, Lord. We don't have the capacity to do anything with this ourselves. It's spiritually discerned. We need your spirit to, to guide us into all truth, Lord. Jesus said, you said that we were taught by God. I pray that tonight you would be our teacher, that you would speak to us, Lord. We need to hear from you. We need, we need your word to feed the living manna, and we need it for our spiritual strength for this world, Lord. People, they're going into the world tomorrow. They're going back to work. They're going to their neighborhoods. They're going into the war zone, Lord, and, and they're on mission to, to rescue captives and to stand firm and to represent you. And we can't do that without our spiritual nourishment, Lord. So nourish us tonight. Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So tonight we're talking about free will. Uh, I know this is something we've all heard of, we've all talked about, something that's kind of controversial in theological circles and philosophical circles. And there's many ideas what it is. Um, but yeah, tonight we're going to try to see what God says about it. Of our will, our volition, uh, through the Bible, and, uh, and how God wants us to use it. But there's much debate about the topic of free will. There's much misunderstanding today in regards to the topic of free will and, and determinism. Determinism is the opposite of free will. Free will says that uh, uh, agents, human agents, have the free capacity to make decisions, and and, and their decisions. 
have consequences. And determinism says the opposite of that, that everything is determined in life and it's happening the way that it got, whoever determined it is determined it to happen. And so it doesn't really leave much room for people to make free choices because choices have been determined for them. And so there's much confusion and misunderstanding around these two things. And there's a few reasons for that. Number one, it's a, it's a difficult subject. It's a difficult subject, uh, first and foremost, I believe, because the Bible teaches both. It teaches free will and determinism. In Acts chapter 2, remember the, the Holy Spirit fell on the 120 that were in the upper room praying there on Pentecost. And what happened when the Spirit fell on them? They started speaking in tongues. And the Jewish people from all over the world that were passing by going to the temple uh, for Pentecost to go worship, they hear this group of 120 speaking in different tongues, praising God in different tongues. And some of them started mocking and saying, uh, look, they're drunk. And Peter said, they're not drunk. It's way too early in the morning to be drunk. This isn't the, the one. This is what Joel talked about in the promise of the coming spirit. Joel prophesied in Joel chapter 2 that God's spirit would come upon all people. Whether you're old or young, whether you're free or a slave, and, and they would all prophesy. And that's what you see. And he started preaching to them about Jesus and how they crucified their Messiah. And Peter says this in Acts chapter 2 verse 23. He says, this man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. Right there, he says, godless men chose to murder Jesus. That was the desire of their heart. That's what they wanted to do, 100%. God wasn't forcing them to do it. But at the same time, God had predetermined that it would happen. God is sovereign over history. He actually wrote history before it happened. That's how he could know the end from the beginning. So, so we have both. We have human freedom. These men chose to murder Jesus. But we also have God's predetermined plan being worked out. You know, I teach this class in the School of Discipleship on Calvinism and Arminianism. And the book that I use for our textbook is called Chosen But Free by Norman Geisler. And, and the reason I like this book is because it stresses both of these. It stresses the freedom aspect that we have, but also God's sovereignty over salvation. D.A. Carson calls this compatibilism, that these two things are compatible. They're not at odds or at conflict with each other, human freedom and God's sovereignty, but they're compatible. It's two different ways of looking at the same thing. It's two different views. We talked about this. Romans 1 it's all about God's sovereignty, right? You've been predestined. You've been predestined. You've been predestined. Well, it's giving you the heavenly view. It's giving you the view from above, God's sovereignty over everything. But then there's passages in the Bible that, that stress the, the human responsibility, the whosoever wills, those types of things. And so we have both, and they're not in conflict with each other, but they're compatible with each other. Another part of what makes this discussion or debate so difficult is the fact that many groups use this same term. They use the term free will, but it means something different. They have a different definition for what it means. And so they start arguing about this 
idea or this concept. They're coming from different perspectives or a different starting place, but they're using the same term. And so it's, it's kind of hard to have a discussion like that. We see that today in politics, where the Republicans and the Democrats will they'll, they'll use a term for something, but the, the, the term means radically different things for both groups. And they can't have an honest discussion with each other about it because they can't nail down what that term actually means. This term free will is huge in, in the area of philosophy. In fact, if you go on YouTube and search the term free will, surprisingly, mostly what you're going to find is uh, philosophers and, and philosophical videos talking about free will. And even more surprisingly, you'll discover that most of them are arguing that human beings don't have a free will, that everything's determined, and that everything's coming from cause and effect. And, and, and what's happening to us and the choices that we get are, uh, we're not really having a free choice, but it's uh, the effect of something else that happened before it. So if I make a decision, it's not really free because it's influenced by prior actions. They stress fate, determinism, taking away the responsibility from humans. We see this all the time today. People say, no, it's not Johnny's fault for doing such and such a crime. He was brought up in a bad environment where the system was rigged against him. It's systemic racism. It's not their fault. They'll make all these excuses whether it's nurture or nature or, or whatever, it's never the person's fault. But we see that this view of free will is unbiblical. Yes, because cause and effect are real things. Nature and nurture matter. However, God has given us the ability to make decisions and command us to make righteous decisions. Not only does he demand righteous decisions, but he's also going to hold us responsible for the decisions that we make and the whether they're wrong decisions or good decisions. He's either going to punish us or he's going to reward us for them. So the philosophical view of free will is wrong, right? because it doesn't have any room really for free will, and it takes away the responsibility away from people, two things that God's Word does not give. But there's another view that I want to highlight real quick, and I'll call this the secular humanist view of free will. This is the most dominant view of human freedom in our Western culture. And sadly, it's not just amongst the secular people. I think this is probably the most dominant view even in the church today. And the humanist view of human freedom is that man is free to choose good or evil, and there's no inclination either way. That is to say that man could freely choose to do good, he could also freely choose to do evil whenever he wants, and he has the ability to carry it out. The secular humanist says that man is neutral when it comes to good and evil. He has no bent or inclination either way. This is popular in our society today. They say people are typically good. They're generally good. The Bible says that we're not. <laughs> we're bent towards evil. But in this view, the person has the ability to choose salvation. They have the ability in and of themselves to choose righteousness. And that through this view is an error. Because it doesn't account for the corruption experienced from the fall. It doesn't account for original sin. It doesn't account for man's depravity. John 8.34 
Jesus is at this pet feast, the Feast of Lights, and groups are coming to him, and he's talking to them, and some of them are believing in him. And it says this in John 8.34, Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits a sin is a slave to sin. It's a person who's ongoingly committing sins, who's characterized by sin. The person who's a sinner, right? We're not sinners, we're saints. We've been translated from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. We're not characterized by sin, we're characterized by Christ. The person who's characterized by sin is a slave to sin, Jesus is saying. So much so that in John 6, 44, Jesus had said this. He said, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. By the way, that, that word draws, it's the same Greek word used when Paul and Silas were arrested in Philippi. And it says that they drew him or dragged him before the council. Now, do you think the people that arrested Paul and Silas were like encouraging them to come before the council, to come before the judge? Saying, come on, one step in front of the other, you're doing a good job. But, you know, this is what it will be like when you get there. No, they're, they're, they're arresting them. They're, they're literally dragging them to the council. This word's also used of drawing water out of a well. When, when someone draws water out of the well, do they sit there and talk to the water? Come on, you can do it. Come on, get in the bucket. I'm really thirsty. I need some of your milk. No, they put the bucket down there and they drag the water out of the bucket or out of the well. So the second our humanist view of freedom is lacking because it doesn't account for the effects of recent Jeremiah sin. You see, our corruption from the fall makes it necessary for God not only uh, to, to drag us to Christ the same way that that water is dragged out of the well or that Paul and Silas were dragged before the council. But then how are we to define free will? If those definitions of free will are lacking, if they're not good enough, how are we to define free will? Well, this is a, a difficult thing to find a good definition for. I was kind of surprised in my theological textbooks and that how little information there really was on free will. Because countless Bible encyclopedias and dictionaries, and most of them didn't even have an entry for free will. For a definition, Jonathan Edwards said this, free will is the mind choosing. Right? He's saying, hey, we, we have a mind that's thinking, and then the will, the volition, is making choices based on the information that we're thinking about. Edwards also wrote about the law of free will, which slightly differs from this definition of free will. He described the law of free will this way. He said, free moral agents always act according to the strongest inclination we have at the time of choice. In other words, when we're presented with choices, we'll always make the choice we want to make. This is why sinners with a depraved nature always choose some form of sin. Because but that's what they desire. They, they desire some form of sin. And John Calvin defined free will this way. He said, if by free will, we mean that man has the ability to choose what he wants, of course he does have free will. He says, if it's the ability to choose righteousness, then no, he doesn't. 
this may be a good time to bring up the Synod of Dort. The Synod of Dort took place in 1618 and 1619, and this Synod was called to debate the teachings of John Calvin, who lived in the early 1500s, and Jacobus Arminius, who also lived around that time. The followers of John Calvin were called Calvinists, and the followers of Jacobus Arminius are called Arminians. And these are two theological systems that try to explain the way that sinners become saints, the way that people go from the, the natural man who's inclined and bent towards sin to being in Christ and, you know, being righteous. How does this happen? And the nature of free will is at the heart of this debate. Arminius, he had more of a kind of humanistic view of free will. He did stress that God had to do something. He had to intervene in some way to bring a sinner to saving faith. However, he said God's grace worked in all sinners, giving everybody the ability to freely choose God or reject him. Calvin was a little bit different. Calvin said that we're unable to choose Christ because of the fall. And we can't freely choose God unless God first gives us a new heart and God gives us new desires. Because our our fallen nature, our our corrupted person, is so utterly against God and hostile to God that we need a whole new nature before we could actually choose God or do anything to please God. He has to set us free from the bondage before we could choose Him. Arminius stressed man's choice. Calvin stressed God's choice in salvation. Um, there's a problem with Arminius's view, I think. And, and it's about man's choice that I have something over my unregenerate nature. I have a reason to boast because I was smarter than him. I was able to put the pieces together and and I was able to realize that I needed to choose Christ, and he wasn't. There's something lacking in his thinking, or deficient in his mind, that isn't in mine, that allowed me to see my need for Christ and him not to. And this goes clearly against what Scripture says. In 1 Corinthians 4, 7, it says, For who regards you as superior? What do you have that you didn't receive? And if you did receive it, Why do you boast as if you had not received it? Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith and not of yourself. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one would boast. Right? The Bible takes away any possibility of us being able to boast for our being in Christ, for our being saved. But if I'm saved because I was able to put something together that other people weren't, that would give me reason to boast. This Reformed view or Calvinist view is often charged with denying free will and thus turning us into robots. But that's not true. That's actually what philosophy does. That's what science and universities want you to believe. There's no legitimate Reformed scholar or pastor that denies that humans have a will or a volition and that we exercise it freely. These free decisions then have consequences, 
In fact, God commands everyone to make right decisions. And he holds us accountable for the decisions we make. All right, now let's look at, at Deuteronomy 30, starting in, in verse 15. Now remember Deuteronomy is, uh, literally the name Deuteronomy means the second giving of the law. Moses had brought the children of Israel out of Egypt, out of bondage, remember through the parting of the Red Sea, when the Egyptian army was baptized in the Red Sea, and then they went and wandered in the desert for 40 years. And God was teaching them during those 40 years that he will be with them, that God will dwell with them, that God will protect them, that God will provide them. And we have this amazing time during this 40-year period where God is showing himself strong on behalf of the nation of Israel. He's performing miracles on the per- on behalf of the nation of Israel, more so than probably any other time other than the three-year ministry of Jesus Christ in the entire Bible. And they get to the edge of the promised land. They're about to go in. Moses can't go in, remember, because he dishonored God. He smote the rock, misrepresenting God instead of speaking to the rock. But he wants to prepare the children of Israel for when they go in. And so he gives this sermon. And, and, and he's telling them all about how they were rescued out of Egypt and all reminding them of the law that God gave them and his 40-year period and how God had worked so mightily on their behalf. And then we come to the end. And, and, and they're, they're on Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim and they're announcing the blessings and the cursings. And they're saying, hey, if you do what's right, God will bless you. If you do what's wrong, God's going to curse you. And they're all agreeing to that. And then we get to chapter 30, and in verse 15, Moses says this. He says, See, I have set before you today life and prosperity and death and adversity, and that I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in his commandments, or to walk in his ways and keep his commandments and his statutes and his judgments, that you may live and multiply, and that the Lord your God may bless you in the land where you are entering to possess it. But if your heart turns away, and you will not obey, but are drawn away and worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. You will not prolong your days in a land where you are crossing the Jordan to enter and possess it. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. So choose life in order that you may live, you and your descendants, by loving the Lord your God, by obeying his voice, and by holding fast to him. For this is your life and the length of your days, that you may live long in the land which the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, to give them. Here we see God putting two paths before the children of Israel. One way is righteousness, and the other is unrighteousness. And he commands them to choose rightly and says there will be consequences if they don't. Now, would God do this if they didn't really have a choice in what they did? Would it be fair to punish them for the events that are predetermined for them? If it was predetermined for them to go in there and not obey the Lord and they didn't have a choice in it, would it be fair for God to punish them for that? I don't think so. I think we could see here that they had a real choice. They had real liberty. So our first fill-in is the word liberty. God has given us a 
natural liberty. God's given us the ability to make volitional decisions. And these decisions are free from any type of coercion. There's nothing forcing us to make the decisions that we make. We choose what we most want at the time of choosing. And there are consequences for these choices. Paul says it this way, kind of the New Testament version of what we just read in Galatians 6, 7, and 8. He says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked, for whatever a man sows, he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. So it's clear we have a, a freedom, and we're responsible for the way that we use this freedom. Number one, human liberty looks different in different dispensations. Human liberty looks different in different dispensations. Remember a few weeks ago we were talking about covenants and God's covenant with man. And during that I talked a little bit about dispensations or dispensational covenants and how there's uh, different dispensations in the Bible or times where God interacted a little differently with his people. And so we kind of see that here with our liberty. It looks a little different in four different uh, arenas or, or areas where God was working with them. This liberty we have looks a little different depending upon when one is living and what condition their soul is in. So in the garden, Adam and Eve, they, had, uh, they, they truly had the ability to choose good or evil. Right? They had no sin nature that was binding them in that direction. They were totally free to choose what they desired. And God put them on a mutable footing that that, that, that was able to change. God allowed them the ability to make bad choices, not just good choices, and when they did, their footing would change. And after the fall, Adam and Eve's nature changed. They took on a corrupted nature. And this corrupted nature separated them from God and made them unable to please God. It put them at odds with God. And this corruption affected their offspring, this ability to truly choose righteously as well. It put them in bondage to sin. The third way is that God gave some people a new heart with new desires. And this new heart comes with a freedom from that corruption, allowing the regenerate person the ability to choose not to sin. However, this regenerate Christian still has a sin nature. Therefore, the Christian is in this battle between the spirit and the flesh, between the old man and the new. And we'll talk a little bit more about that in a bit. Finally, the, the last area is upon entering glory. We will be given new perfect bodies without the stain of sin. And in this state, we'll be able to truly only choose good and righteousness. We'll no longer be able to choose evil and we'll be truly free. Revelation 21 verses 3 and 4 says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men. He will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain, 
for the first things have passed away. That's awesome, right? No more death, no more tears, no more mourning, no more pain. And the reason that there's no more of these things is because these are all a product of sin, and there's no possibility of sin in the new heavens and the new earth. We're going to be free from that. So there's four estates in which our human freedom or free will would a little bit different. Number two, put in the word ability. Liberty is not identical to ability. Liberty is not identical to ability. And I think this is an important distinction for us to make. Because in all four estates that we were just talking about, there's freedom. Does freedom look a little bit different because the people have different abilities in these four different states? For instance, in the, the second stage we talked about, right? Adam and his descendants are corrupted by sin. Well, they still had the ability to choose righteousness. They had the freedom to choose righteousness. They just didn't have the ability to carry it out. You see, God is still giving them the choice of salvation. In fact, he's commanding sinners to come to the cross and to repent. This is why he has every right to judge somebody who doesn't. Right? They disobey his command. The problem isn't that God isn't giving them the choice of salvation. The problem is their nature. They have a nature that doesn't allow them to make that choice. I like using the illustration, and I've used it before. Imagine in the middle of this room, there was two barrels. And in one barrel, we filled it up with salmon. And in the other barrel, we filled it up with carrots. And we locked the doors, and we allowed a grizzly bear to come in. And we leave him uninfluenced, uninterrupted. Which barrel is this grizzly bear going to go for? He's going to go for the salmon. Now, he's free to go for the carrots if he wants, but he's, he's not going to because it's against his nature. Now, we take the, the grizzly bear out, and we allow a rabbit to come in. Which one is the rabbit going to go for? Is it going to go for the salmon, or is it going to go for the carrots? It's going to go for the carrots, not because it can't go for the salmon, but because it's against its nature. Its nature is to eat carrots, so that's what it's going to go for. And so God has put Jesus Christ before everybody on the cross and is commanding them to come, commanding them to choose righteousness, commanding them to choose salvation, commanding them to repent of their sins. The problem isn't that God isn't allowing the sinner to come. The problem is, is their nature. They have a sinful nature. And in their sin nature, they cannot choose Christ. There needs to be something that happens to change their nature to be able to choose righteousness. So it's not that God is saying, no, I don't want you. No, I didn't choose you. No, you can't have salvation. It's the opposite. God's saying, no, come. Everybody must come. The problem is, is they need a new nature. And this is why God exercises predestination. It's not that he wants to be controversial and seem unfair. No, he predestines people because it's necessary. If he didn't predestinate anybody, then nobody would get saved because all of us have a nature that's totally against him because of the fall. So he has to predestinate some people to salvation, and then he has to work and change their heart, change their affections, so that they actually will come and will actually choose Christ. It's ensuring that Christ actually has a bride, which is us. But if God didn't predestinate anybody, that wouldn't happen. 
But sinners have the freedom or the ability to choose Christ and salvation. The problem is they don't have the ability because their nature in bondage to sin. But the good news is this, is that Christ does change hearts. And when we preach the gospel and it falls on the right heart soil, sinners are regenerated and given eternal life with God. Charles Hayden Spurgeon said this, if God were to put a big P on people's chest showing who was predestined, he would go around lifting up people's shirts to see if they had that P on their chest. But God didn't do that. God hasn't given us the roll call of heaven. So we go and we preach the whosoever gospel. And we trust that when we preach that gospel, it's going to fall some of it on good soil, on hearts that have been changed, on hearts that God is drawing to Jesus. And when we do that, life will happen. Eternal life will happen. People will get saved. And so we go out and we preach the gospel to all creation. Predestination is a motivation to preach the gospel, not not to, as it's accused of being, when we think about it that way. In Acts chapter 17, Paul is has this Macedonian vision, remember? And he's there and he sees this giant guy, come over here. People are going to be saved. And he's afraid. And the Lord says, it's okay. You're in our city. I have many people in that city. There were people that were appointed for salvation, for Paul to go and meet. It's the same thing for you and I. There's people all around us that are appointed for salvation, and when the Word of God and the Spirit of God come together, they'll come to life, and we get to be a part of that. Number three, Christ gives the regenerate the ability to please God. So phone the word regenerate. See, part of the reason that we have such a hard time understanding these doctrines is because our culture has such a wrong view of the natural man or the sinner and his relationship with God. We tend to think that people are mostly good. Maybe they need a little bit of help, but the heart is good. And our supply, our society believes that God loves everyone unconditionally, is happy with people right where they're at. Well, this couldn't be further from the truth. Psalm 5.5 5 says, The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all who do iniquity. You hate all who do iniquity. That's God's disposition towards the sinner. Genesis 6.5, Then the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That's the heart of the natural man. It's not mostly good. It's only evil continually. Jeremiah 17.9, The heart is more deceitful than all else, and it's desperately sick. Who can understand it? You're like, Joe, I understand. But those are Old Testament passages. Those are when God was angry. We're in the New Testament now. Now we're under grace. It's different. Oh, yeah? Romans 8, verses 5-8, through 8, For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the Spirit the things of the Spirit. For the mindset on the flesh is death, but the mindset on the Spirit is life and peace. Because the mindset on the flesh is hostile toward God. It does not subject itself to the law of God, for it's not even able to do so. For those who are in the flesh cannot please God. They can't please God. It's impossible for them to please God. One more, Romans 3, verses 10 through 12. This is a passage that we always go to to speak of the depravity of man. 
total depravity or the total inability to sin to save themselves. And this is a great passage because this applies to everybody. Right? Paul's writing to the church in Rome, which is mostly a Gentile audience. But he's stringing together a bunch of quotes from the Old Testament. All of these uh, uh, verses in the Old Testament that he's stringing together. So it applies to the Jewish people as well. As it is written, there's none righteous, not even one. There's none who understands. There's none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There's none who does good. There is not even one. Paul says that there's, they're unable to please God. There's none who seek God. They may be seeking some made-up God, but no one's actually seeking the God of the Bible. There's no unregenerate person walking around looking for the God that says, if you want to come after me, you need to deny yourself, pick up your cross daily, and then live the way I did. Nobody wants that. Right? They want the God that's created in their image that tells them, hey, you're great, you're lovely, I love you just the way you are. Not that you need to deny yourself, not that you need to die to self. But then he says that there's none that does good. And we have a hard time with this idea that there's none that does good because we look around and we see pagans that aren't trying to come up with the good. I just read about a man who donated $27 million to Chalk Hospital. He said Chalk does such a great thing for these sick kids and these families. And they have this building fund. They need $120 million to build this building to be able to work on certain types of children's cancer. And he's like, that's a great thing. And I want to see kids healed. And so he donated $27 million. That's good, isn't it? Yeah, that's a good deed. However, we must remember that God doesn't just judge the deeds. He judges our hearts. He judges the motivation behind the action. And in Romans 14, it's, it, it's clear. God, Paul says that whatever is not done of faith is sin. And the first step of faith is believing that God exists and, and that he's a rewarder of those who, who come to him by faith. This person doesn't believe that because he doesn't believe in God. It's impossible for him to exercise faith. So even donating that $27 million, as great of an act as that is, it's still sin because he's not doing it to please God. It's impossible for him to please God. He's not doing it as an act of faith. See, when the Bible says that nobody does good, it means that nobody outside of Christ does anything that can truly please God. It doesn't mean that they're not able to do civilly good, right? The unregenerate, they know how to follow traffic signals. They know how to not run red lights and not speed. It doesn't mean that they can't do anything good in an outwardly religious sense. Right? There's plenty of Mormon missionaries doing good deeds, but they're not pleasing to God because they're not basing in genuine faith. They're not hearing God speak and responding appropriately. Because if they were hearing God speak, they'd be repenting and giving their life to Jesus Christ. And that's not what they're doing. As we saw, it doesn't mean that they can't do anything philanthropic either. The problem is in all these things that they're done for selfish reasons. They're done to either get attention or to alleviate someone's conscience or to get a tax break or for some kind of 
quid pro quo. They aren't done emptily and for God's glory. Therefore, they are sent. But for the regenerate, Christ gives them a new heart and frees them from their bondage to sin so that they can truly serve him and do or perform truly good works. John 8, 31 through 36, Jesus says this. So Jesus saying to those Jews who had believed in him, if you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine. And you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. They answered him, we are Abraham's descendants and have never been yet enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will be free? Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son does remain forever. So if the son makes you free, you are free indeed. But the one who sins, the sinner is a slave to sin. First time we sin is because we want to. Sounds fun. And we do it because we enjoy it. And then pretty soon we keep doing it because we can't not do it. Drugs. The first time I did drugs, I loved it. She was great. It's all I wanted to do. But it got to a point where I wanted to do anything but doing drugs because all I could do was do drugs because I was a slave to sin. But Christ has set us free from this bondage. So we're free to be able to choose to not sin. That's what our freedom is. Our freedom isn't to do whatever we want. Our freedom is to be able to choose not to sin to not give in to the flesh, to not give in to temptation. Ephesians 2. You know, this for Ephesians 2. This is such a great passage. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lust of the flesh, indulging in the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy, but God, probably the two greatest words in the entire Bible, became rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. For by grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us up, or seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ, so that in the ages to come he might show us the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, and not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For you are, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we could walk in them. So we've been saved, we've been recreated in Christ so that we can do good works and not sin. So we can have freedom to truly do good works. That's what that's saying. We are dead in our trespasses and sins. We're unable to walk with God. But he made us alive together with Christ so that we can choose to do what's right. We can choose to do what's good. We can walk into these good works that he has prepared for us. But it's not automatic. Even in Christ, we still possess the same nature. But now we have the freedom to say no to it. It's the difference. 
Point number four, we need to exercise and grow our ability. Exercise and grow our dominance. Like I said, we have this new nature in Christ. We have a new ability to say no to sin, but it's not automatic. The book of Romans makes it like, it's a, it's a massive, it's Paul's masterpiece, his theological treatise, where he's explaining how salvation works, how one goes from being in the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light, how one's translated from the kingdom of Satan to the kingdom of Christ. And, and Paul goes into great detail explaining this. In fact, in chapters 1 through 3, Paul, Paul brings the whole world uh, under condemnation. He shows the whole world, both Jew and Greek, that they're guilty and that they're in bondage to sin. In chapters 4 and 5, Paul talks about justification. Justification, just as if I had never sinned. And he explains how one is saved, how one is justified, how one's made right in God's eyes. Out of those three chapters, right? We're all guilty. How does God get us saved? How does he justify? That's 4 and 5. Well, chapters 6, 7, and most of 8 then talk about sanctification. Right? We're declared righteous in God's eyes. Right? We're given the right legal standing. Right? We're declared positionally holy. So practically, how does he make us holy? Well, sanctification. Sanctification works in two parts. There's positional sanctification. That's chapters 4 and 5, where God is declaring us positionally sanctified, positionally set apart, positionally good, positionally holy. But there's also practical sanctification. How does he work that out in our life? We get saved. We're sinners. We're still performing sin. Now, how does he get us to sin less? That's sanctification. But listen to what Paul says in Romans 7. Here he's talking about that sanctification that I was talking about. He says, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold into bondage to sin. For what am I doing? I do not understand. For I am not practicing what I would like to do, but I am doing the very thing I hate. But if I do the very thing I do not want to do, I agree with the law, confessing that the law is good. So now no longer am I the one doing it, but the sin which dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. For the good that I want to do, I don't do, but the practice of the very evil that I don't want to do. But if I am doing the very thing I don't want to do, I'm no longer the one doing it, but the sin which dwells in me. I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man, but I see a different law working in my members and my body, waging war against the law of my mind, and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. Wretched man that I am, who's going to set me free from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then on one hand, I myself, with my mind, am serving the law of God, but on the other, with my flesh, the law of sin. Do you guys ever feel like that? Do you feel like that every day? You know, it's been said that the Christian life is really a battle of the will. Which will is stronger? Our will to sin or our will to please God? We may have the will to not sin like Paul, but not the ability to carry it out because there's 
too much of the old man is still alive in us. This is why in Romans 6, Paul encourages us to render the old man dead to sin and our new man alive to Christ. This is sanctification. This is growing in obedience. Growing in our ability to say no to sin and yes to Christ. But we have a part in this work. It's us and God cooperating in our sanctification. I think the verse that best explains that is Philippians 2, verses 12 and 13. Paul says, So then, beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, he says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. You know, God gives us grace and new desires. But now we need to work these desires out of our new heart to where they become visible and your good works can be seen by all. Think about a muscle. We all have the same amount of muscles in our body. But when we go and we exercise these muscles and we strain these muscles, they grow bigger so that people can see them. That's what Paul's talking about here. He's saying God did this work inside of you when you were saved. When he deposited his spirit, he made you alive. He gave you a new heart. But nobody could see this. Nobody could see your heart. Nobody knows whether you have a new heart or an old heart. So he's saying work it out so that it becomes visible so people could see it. They could see your good deeds. And so we have a part in this. Just as there's exercises that we do in the gym to grow our muscles and make them more visible, there's exercises that grow us spiritually. These are called means of grace. The means of grace are means that God ordinarily uses to impart grace in the lives of his people. There's a few of them. The first one is Bible reading. God imparts grace to us when we read the Bible. You know, as I read the Bible more and more, I, I, I see that uh, what God wants from us in the scriptures and what the, our society is are uh, totally antithetical to each other. They, they, they just, they're, they're complete opposites. But how will I know what sin is living in a culture like ours if I'm not reading the Bible? How will I have the encouragement, the desire to not sin, to do the things of the Bible instead of the things of the culture if I'm not having my mind renewed by Scripture. Here's what Paul says in Romans 12 too. He says, And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. If you're just going about your day and there's nothing in there, relationship to the Word of God, you're just naturally going to be conformed to the culture. But when we spend time in the Bible every day, every morning, our mind is being renewed. We're starting to see things from God's perspective. Now we know what God wants from us. God's been building our heart up so that we could then carry that out. And we have the desire to carry it out. We have the desire to choose what He wants instead of choosing what fallen culture wants and sinful desires sinful flesh wants. I think we often want to get in the Word, but for whatever reason, Satan keeps us from it. Maybe we're busy. Maybe we forget. Maybe we just don't feel like reading it, so I say, I'll do it later. It just never happens. I've done all of these, to be honest. Might I remind you that reading the Bible is a spiritual discipline? 
disciplines are things that we don't typically like to do. But we know that we need to do them, so we force ourselves to do them until they become a habit. I'm a big fan of these Bible reading plans for this reason. There's all kinds of these Bible reading plans. You can find one that works for you. In fact, I found a website where they'll create one special for you, where you tell them what your disease, your needs are, you know, how busy you are, if you're doing your free time. They'll design a Bible reading plan specifically for you. But I like this because it, it gives us a way to stay on track. It gives us a way to, to, to discipline ourselves to reading the Bible. Better yet, do it with an accountability partner. Do it with somebody else. It's keeping you accountable to stay on track with this Bible reading plan. Encourage one another in the Lord. Right? That was our message last week, how we would encourage one another. We need to be encouraging people with the Lord, encouraging people to stay in the Lord, sharing what we're getting out of the Lord. Things like that are going to keep people in their Bible reading plan because it's so important. David said in Psalm 119, or 119 verse 11, he said, Your word I've hidden in my heart so that I will not sin against you. The more of the word of God that we're taking in, the less we're going to sin. It's really the cure for everything. The more that I'm in the Bible, the greater I do my Christian walk, typically. The more I'm reading the Bible, the more I'm sharing my faith. Right? What goes in is what's going to come out. If all day I'm taking in Scripture, when I meet people, that's what I'm going to talk about. If all I'm doing is watching Fox News or CNN, when I meet people, I'm going to talk politics. When I'm reading the Bible, my mind is fixed on the Bible, and I desire to do the Bible and not the things of the world. See, our relationship to, or how we're doing in our walk is, is, is directly tied to our relationship to God's Word. Another means of grace is prayer. We need to stay connected with God through prayer throughout the day. We need to see the areas where we're falling, the areas that we need to be you know, focusing on, the, the areas that we need to have victory in. And we need to be praying about those before they even come up. How many of you guys have seen the movie uh, Saving Private Ryan? Remember there was that scene where they, they come to Normandy and they're about to get off the boats, right? And they just open the hatches and they start getting out. They just start getting mowed down one right after another, right, from the beach. Well, that's not typically how we storm a beach anymore. <laughs> like we've learned from that. You see, now we launch all kinds of bombs at them and bomb the, bomb the heck out of the beach so that we break up the enemy break up their ability to defend that beach and to fire at us. So that way when the men and the troops come, you know, they, they stand a chance. They, they could be victorious. The enemy's ground has been broken up. Well, this is what happens when we're praying to the areas that we're struggling in before those temptations come. If I'm struggling with lust and I wake up in the morning and I'm praying, God, give me victory over lust. Keep me from the, the temptations of the evil one. God, don't let me fall into lust. Lord, help me to keep my eyes pure. And I'm praying these things. You see, when these temptations would come, I would have a much better shot at having victory because that has been broken up. It's like it's like the bombs going before me, breaking up the ground so that I can't storm the beach and have victory. But if I'm not, then I'm walking into a trap. I'm just going to get mowed down like the guys on Saving Private Ryan. So we need to be praying for those areas that we want to have 
victory over before they even come upon us. Thirdly, fellowship is a means of grace. Who do you hang out with? You know, we become like those around us. We're like cucumbers. Right? If they're saturated in vinegar, they're going to turn into pickles. Just, that's just what we do. 1 Corinthians 10, 33, sorry, 1 Corinthians 15, 33 says, Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Like prison sermons. Hebrews 10, 24 and 25 says this, And let us consider how to stir or stimulate one another up to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. So when we're with other believers, we're stirred up to love and good deeds. When we're with worldly people, our values and morals become corrupted. So I ask, who do you spend your time with? Because you're going to become like them. <laughs> How about serving with them? How often do I not feel like serving others? But when I do, I'm just totally blessed and spend time serving. So much. The fact is, if we're going to become like Jesus, we need to grow in service. We should have lives marked by service. Look at what Jesus did. Remember the disciples? They were arguing over who was going to be the greatest in this kingdom. That's what they were concerned about. Jesus says this in Luke 22, verses 24 through 26. And there arose also a dispute among them as to which one of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who have authority over them are called benefactors. But it's not that way with you. But the one who is the greatest among you must become like the youngest, and the leader like the servant. For who is greater, the one who reclines at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table? But I'm among you as the one who serves. In the world, the one who's being served is the greatest, but in the kingdom, it's the one who's doing the service, who's doing the serving. In God's economy, the values are inverted. See, I believe if we want to grow in our faith, which we all do, otherwise we wouldn't be here on Tuesday night. I believe we all want to be able to exercise our free will and say no to sin and yes to righteousness. But if this is going to happen, we need to embrace these disciplines. We need to give ourselves to them. We need to make them more and more a part of who we are. And as we do, I trust that sin and sin will become less and less a reality in our lives. Number five. I'm almost done. I'm filling the word only. One day, we will only be able to please God. First John 3.2. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him, because we will see him just as he is. John says we will be just as he is. We'll be without a sin nature. We won't be able to sin. We won't be able to choose sin. We'll be able 
to please God 100% of the time. That'll be our only choice. Our ultimate destiny is to be with Christ without the possibility of sin. That's amazing, right? For times we're destined to be with Christ, apart from any semblance of sin, we should get as much of it in as we can right now, right? No, <laughs> no, that's not what we should do. We should be getting ready for that day by eliminating sin in our life. <laughs> not soaking as much of it in as we can. That's what John, 1 John 3, 3 says. He says, and everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself, just as he is pure. You know, I think we often think about heaven the wrong way. I think people often think of heaven as a place to where they go and they can indulge their carnal passions without suffering the consequences of indulging their carnal passions. I often ask you, I often like to ask people why they want to go to heaven talking to people. And sometimes you'll hear things like this. I want to go to heaven because I'll be able to eat as much as I want and not get fat. Really? You want to go to heaven for gluttony? I want to go to heaven because I can just not really do anything like that. Oh, you want to go to heaven to be lazy? That's not what heaven is. Heaven is a holy place. Inhabitants are holy, its occupations are holy, its activities are holy, everything about it is holy. Even the bells on the horse's bridle say, Oh, thank you to the Lord. It's about holiness, it's about holy affections. This is everything about heaven is holy. And so I ask, if you're not into holiness now, what makes you think that you're into heaven? Or that you even belong there? If we believe that heaven's our home, going to be preparing ourselves for it now. So we're going to start using our wills to make righteous choices, not sinful ones. Along getting people better at making these decisions. This is going to be the cry of our hearts is to be more like Jesus, to be closer to Jesus, and we long more and more and more and more for that day where we'll be in heaven and the sin nature will be taken away so that we can come in 100% truly use our will God, uh, I thank you. Thank you that you've given us wills. I thank you that you've given us a freedom to use our wills and to choose you, to choose you, Lord. I pray that you help us to do that. I pray that you grow us in sanctification. Like you said in the garden, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth, Lord. We know that if we're going to be sanctified, if we're going to have a mind in you, if we're going to have a will that's after your will, it's going to be through your word, Lord. So I pray you Increase our appetite for that. Give us, give us a hunger and thirst for righteousness, O Lord. Help us to hide, hide your word in our hearts so we don't sin against you, Lord. Help us to long for the pure milk of the word, Lord. To taste them again every morning. And I trust as we do, we'll hear them give us pure affections of you. Help us to care for those out there. I pray also that you help us to preach your word to Benjamin to that same audience, Lord. And we do look forward to your coming. We look forward again to that day. We're just like you. So come, Lord. Be with your